Hi, this is Amanda Borshaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, we're speaking with the Israel Antiquities Authority senior researcher, Dr. Tali Erickson-Gini, about the Nabataeans' Incense Road, which is today a World Heritage Site. We'll talk about the fall of the Nabataean trade route, possibly due to an epidemic, and other precious commodities in the ancient Holy Land, including how globalization influenced antiquity. For over 20 years, Tali was the IA's Southern Negev Subdistrict Archaeologist, and she has conducted numerous archaeological excavations and surveys in many parts of the Negev and Petra. In 2019, Tali excavated a large area south of Ashkelon's Agamim neighborhood, where she discovered evidence of wine and garum production from 2,000 years ago. We'll talk about that too. Tali is also an adjunct lecturer in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and if you ever have a chance to hear her speak, it is a thrill. Hi, Tali. Thank you for joining me. Where am I finding you today? I'm in my office in the Israel Antiquities Authority office in Omer. Uh, it's a little bit north of Beersheba. Exactly, in the Negev, because your, your mm-hmm. work is in the Negev, essentially. Exactly, yeah. Great. So how did you get into archaeology, and where, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up on a farm in uh, in what would be the border of the Ozarks in Missouri. Um, and I made Aliyah right after high school, although everybody's surprised when they hear that because I still have a pretty strong American accent in my Hebrew. Uh, but I've actually been here for over 40 years, close to over 45 years almost. So that's where I came from. And archaeology, I didn't jump into immediately. When I first came to Israel and I started to study in Tel Aviv University, I was studying uh, Middle Eastern studies and history, and I didn't think my Hebrew was good enough at the time uh, to to use it for archaeology. But once I became a young mother living down here in the Negev, and I already had three children at that time, and then later I had another one, um, I became interested in the idea of going back to get a graduate degree. And I started, I got interested, I always, I grew up in a house with, with uh, not antiquities, but with antiques. And uh, my father was a big collector and historian. And I can remember going around the fields in Missouri after they would plow the fields looking for arrowheads, for Indian arrowheads. And uh, so I kind of grew up in that kind of uh, atmosphere. And um, when I had the opportunity, I was living we're still living on a Moshav Kadesh Barnea, which is right next to the Egyptian border. It's very close to an early Nabataean site called Nitsana or Nisana in ancient times. And um, people started showing me things, started showing me things that had to do with, uh, uh, with archaeology there, like ancient coins and that kind of thing. And my interest went straight up, of course, because I grew up with that kind of thing. And I decided to go back and basically I had to do more study and I was accepted to the graduate program in Tel Aviv University in archaeology. And during that time, I also was recruited, uh, first of all, by Ben-Gurion University in the Negev. I was excavating with them at Nitsana for about three years. And I was, from that point, I was recruited by the the Israel Antiquities Authority to work uh, as a, started out just as an excavator and inspector. And within a couple of years, I was appointed as inspector for basically all of the Southern Negev, which was quite interesting, especially for a woman uh, to get that kind of a role. And I did that for over 20 years until rather recently. 
that gives you an idea. That's so fascinating. It, it resonates <laughs> on so many levels because I too am from a, a rural-ish kind of place, Indiana. And so I remember going out mm-hmm. and looking for arrowheads and uh, mm-hmm. never finding any ever, ever. Because <laughs> My I think father really- found them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think you really need an eye. I know uh, my, my eldest son is able to find coins. He's able to find all sorts mm-hmm. of things. But I look at things and they just look like rocks to me. And you especially, <laughs> you work with such a variety of periods in, in your work throughout mm-hmm. the negative, which is massive, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how are you able to, yeah. to work with these different periods and differentiate between them? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's a matter of, of uh, just pure experience. You start working it, and um, it's not really something you can learn in a university. I mean, the university gives you a lot of context. It gives you, you know, it gives you what you need in order to know how to deal with it once you find it. But uh, you really have to go out. I, w- I spent time with other people uh, that already had more knowledge than I. We would bring things back. We would show them things. They would take me out to the field. And very quickly you start to see, one good thing about the negative, by the way, is that you don't have any foliage, or most places there's hardly any foliage. So everything's right there. You can see anything from very early prehistoric times right up until modern times. It's all out there. It's like you don't have to work too hard to get to it or see it. It's not under two meters of soil or, you know, sand. It's right there. And so it's easy to find. And it takes many years, of course, to, you know, to pick up the experience and the knowledge and to be able to differentiate. We're still discovering things. We're still discovering things that we didn't know. And um, as far as looking for finds, um, again, it comes from working with it. You start excavating and then you have to deal with the finds. You have to publish them and you learn it. You just start sitting down. You read, you look books, you look for comparisons. Uh, you consult with researchers here and there. And it just, the whole thing comes just with experience, really, more than anything. It's nothing, I actually did study a little bit of pottery, early pottery in university. I can't say that it helped me, hardly at all. Uh, but it, when it's, it, when, when it's in context, when you're out in the field and you're seeing it and you're seeing it in a certain context, then it starts to make sense and then you start to remember it quite easily. And by the now way, you- we have whole big big periods of time that there's nothing, by the way. So the Negev is not covered from from the time periods I work in, let's say uh, from like maybe 3500 BC uh, forward. It's not like we have continuous occupation. It's kind of sporadic. And it picks up more and more towards the, the classical period, the Nabataeans and the Byzantine period. That's very much. But before that, you don't have that much occupation. And it's pretty easy to be able to tell one thing from the other to tell you the truth. Now, one of the reasons, of course, that you don't have much foliage is because it's so incredibly hot and arid where you're working. (laughs) (laughs) And and when the periods that you uh, are intensely interested in and have uh, done a lot of work in is, of course, the Nabataean period. And you talked about the incense road with me earlier. And one of the things I found very fascinating is essentially the Nabataeans were kind of like the people of Dune Desert Planet. They controlled the spice but they also controlled the water. And the control of the water perhaps was their secret weapon, wasn't it? That's true. And um, I, I agree with you. I think that Herbert probably took his, a lot of his ideas. He must have been reading a little bit of archaeology or some discoveries, at least in the newspaper, uh, to get the idea. Uh, the Nabataeans, uh, we know from very early, from the earliest that we hear about them is from the 4th century BC, towards the end of the 4th century. This is a time right around the time of Alexander the Great, 
or right after his death. And we have reports by commanders, ex-commanders of, of Alexander uh, concerning the Nabataeans in that region. And one of the things that they emphasize over and over again, uh, not only that early uh, historian, which is Hieronymus of Cardia, but also later historians emphasize the fact that the, the Nabataeans uh, were very, very proficient in um, excavating, or you could say ewing out of stone um, the, or out of the bedrock, very large cisterns, which they would line with hydraulic plaster. Like they didn't just ew them out. And these are really big, big installations. Uh, they also knew how to make hydraulic plaster in order to cover the inside. And these were placed very strategically, uh, not around, there were no settlements. They were placed strategically very close to roads. Uh, they would hide the entrance to them so that they, according to the ancients, they knew exactly where they were. Any army that might try to come in, a raiding party, if they tried to take control, usually they would die of thirst <laughs> and they wouldn't be able to, to, to survive. The Nabataeans knew where all these were, and we have a lot of examples. We keep discovering them in the Negev Highlands even today, and uh, they're, they're really amazing feats of, of engineering. And this people, they really knew what they were doing, and that was how they, they maintained their independence until the Romans finally took over in 106 AD. Uh, but up until that point, they were totally independent, there's only one short episode. The only the only army that ever defeated them were actually was actually the Hasmoneans under Alexander Genius. And there was a brief episode. The Nabataeans did not even win back their territory uh, by war. It was a political deal in which the um, the Hasmonean um, the the, uh, the heir one of the heirs, which was uh, Hyrcanus II. Uh, made a political deal to get aid from the Nabataeans, but in return he gave back all the territory that his father had taken and that his mother had held uh, for several decades. And that's how they got all that back. And once they got it back, they start to finally settle in the Negev. They start to finally build very small, not very big, they're not cities. Okay, we can't call them cities, but we can call them uh, either stations or or you know, small towns, and their most substantial town, of course, was a site called Ilusa, which is closer to Gaza, and that was their main site. It's it's a it's on a major crossroads between Beersheba and Egypt, and between Petra and Gaza. So there, they had their major site. So when we're talking about the Incense Road, which is now a World Heritage Site since what two thousand five, mm -hmm. I believe. Uh, exactly. What what exactly was the route? And was this a paved road like we associate with the Romans or what kind of road was this? Not at all. Not at all. It was uh, probably more like a camel track. And uh, one of the tracks that are used the most usually will have, they'll be a bit wider, you know, like there's something that you can see quite easily on the landscape, but, um, but they're not very wide. They were not used for wagons. They were used for caravans, mainly camel caravans, maybe a few horses. Um, in times before that, the, many of these routes were already being used much, much earlier in time by donkey caravans as well. But you don't have very much going with them. They didn't have to build a road for doing that kind of thing. And you're correct that it's only under the Roman rule that you start to see them. Uh, the Romans at some point, not immediately, but eventually they even put up uh, road markers, milestones in some places. Um, and then they might have fixed the sides of the roads a little bit, but generally you don't have the kind of Roman engineering 
um, in our part of the desert, like you do in other places, let's say the Via Nova Traiana, which is in Jordan, uh, which is running from, from Aqaba north into Syria, that's a road that was got a lot of attention, and they really put a lot of work into it. These roads were more trails. They were more like camel trails or paths that were going, and they didn't have to put a lot of work into into creating them. And what locations uh, in modern parlance did they connect? Well, actually, most people today, most Israelis, when they go out on a Jeep trip, they know about Derek Samim in Hebrew, the incense road, and they go down parts of it. They know parts of it that are that you can travel through the Ramon Crater or parts of the Ramon Crater, from the Ramon Crater down to the Arava. However, uh, the very earliest incense road actually went a bit north and around the Ramon Crater. The Ramon Crater was quite a, a difficult obstacle. Uh, that had to be taken care of later in time. So in the Hellenistic period, the, the Nabataeans are basically bypassing it on a very, very ancient road, which is called the Darbul Sultan. The Darbul Sultan means, the, in Arabic, the King's Way. And the idea of a, of a road called the King's Way, which we also have in Jordan, by the way, that we know this uh, well, the King's Way, is that the authorities want to make sure that all the caravan traffic is going on one road so that they can tax it. And so that's usually the reason it has that name. So there is a road that up until very modern times was called the Darbul Sultan, and that was the main road. However, there were very big changes at the end of the first century BC, and the Nabataeans were faced with a lot of competition, and they, they evidently came to the conclusion that it wasn't enough just to transport uh, these incense, and we didn't talk about it, but the incense basically is frankincense and myrrh, which they were buying uh, from Arabian, other Arabian peoples in the Arabian Peninsula, from Yemen and places like Yemen and Oman uh, of today, and they were transporting it. Uh, towards the end of the first century BC, with all the competition that's going on around them, they start to produce their own perfumed oils in Petra itself, and this brought in huge, huge revenue, and we can see it. We see it in all the great construction and beautiful tomb architecture in Petra. Most of that's taking place exactly in the time period that we know that they started doing that, which would have been towards the end of the reign of Herod uh, in our time. And this continued throughout the first century AD. Um, they, it was an attractive enough place that the Romans uh, take over about 100 years or so later in 106. However, the, the incense road continued to, to function for another 100, maybe 150 years, um, much later. It, the fact that the Romans took over the Nabataean um, trade did not stop the trade. I would say it actually even enhanced the trade. And the building and the production and the pottery in Petra is going on. And it's nothing slowing it down. Um, the only thing that eventually slowed it down is what is basically the end of the Roman Empire or the, the secession of the um, incense road, the drop in demand, the great high inflation, and many other problems that were happening in the third century. But it took a major world, uh, you could say recession, uh, epidemics, and major problems, military problems for all of that to break down. It was a very, very robust way of life. Um, it's hard for us to imagine. I mean, well, it's not so hard for us to imagine today, but when we think about ancient times, uh, the thing that comes closest to what we know today would have been around that time period, which is called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that the standard of living was very high. 
Now, that does not necessarily translate into as many people as we have in other periods. We have a lot more settlement and a lot more people in the, in the, in the negative, for example, in the Byzantine period. But I would say that the standard of living with the people that were here was much higher in the Roman period. And uh, because there was a lot of money, the money is energy, it's flowing through the Roman Empire. And uh, it, was a very, it was a very good time. However, like they say, all good things must come to an end, and this also came to an end. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now, our listeners uh, can't see you, but you are in front of a picture of Petra, which is just stunning. I was there 13 <laughs> years ago, a long time now that I think about it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's just a fascinating place that has so many unique uh, architectural features that are really mm-hmm. only there, correct? It's only at this place that we see this chiseled down uh, kind of architecture? It's not the only place. It's the biggie. It's a big place. And, um, and Petra is, it really is one of the wonders of the, of the world. It really is. It's very, very intricate and interesting. It's a huge area. It's not one place. It's not one, uh, you, most of the places we think of going to the Roman Forum or to Pompeii, uh, to go to Masada, to Jerusalem. These places you can go through maybe in a day or half a day. Petra is much, much bigger than that. And you can't take it all in. It took me many years for me going back and forth to actually get to so many of the places that there are to see there. There is a lot of religion going on there. There's a lot of, there's, it's, it's a holy place in a way. Um, there's different temples in it, but not just in the temples they were worshiping. You can see shrines almost everywhere. You see it in the hinterland. You see it far, you know, kilometers away from the city center. And as far as the the beautiful tomb architecture, we don't have it just in Petra. We have it also north of Petra in a place called um, the Sika Barid, which is a small place called, that we also call Little Petra, which is in the Baida area north of Petra. But they have also have it in, in the northern Saudi Arabia. There is a, a big site called Madim al-Salih that also has tomb architecture, uh, not nearly as much of it, but it has the same kind of tunes, and then we have Nabataean inscriptions and that kind of thing uh, from the first century A.D. So it's not the only one, but it's the biggest one. It's the most elaborate one. It's the most amazing one. Uh, you can't get, you can't get past that. It's breathtaking. Highly recommend it when uh, COVID passes. Now, it in is. terms of the mm-hmm. end of the incense road being so active, uh, I read in the paper that you sent me that perhaps an epidemic was actually one of the causes for the end of mm-hmm. this uh, activity because as you wrote in the paper, much of the living kind of spaces were left in situ, meaning cooking pots where they would have mm-hmm. landed, et cetera, et cetera. Talk <laughs> about this a little yeah, that's quite intriguing. And I have to tell you, I was met with skepticism when I first uh, when I first brought this up uh, a few this has been well over maybe 10, 15 years ago almost. And um, it sounds strange now, you know, because we're in the midst of a we've been in a mix of an epidemic or a pandemic. Uh, but people are not that aware of how much this was a problem pretty much from the second century AD. You have because of what we have in the Roman period is a kind of archaic type of globalization. And we don't have airplanes, but we have ships. I mean, we the places like Petra even had 
contacts with China, as hard as it is to imagine. And it wasn't the first time. They already had it in the Hellenistic period, and they continue to have it. This is a time that you have that the um, Silk Road is starting up. And you have another big road going through Palmyra uh, in Syria, okay, that's going towards the, the Persian Gulf. And you have ships that are being, huge ships that are being sent from the eastern coast of Egypt, the Red Sea, all the way to India, into southern India. And they're bringing back all these things. Uh, but they're also bringing back with them disease, okay? And researchers believe that these diseases were coming very similar to today uh, from places like southern China, Southeast Asia. And they're working their way along the trade routes, and eventually they get into the the empire, the Roman Empire. And places like Petra are very vulnerable because they're so much connected with trade. They're very, very... Um, uh, they're very cut off. You know, Petra is set in like in a place that's almost you can't almost find um, the Romans. And later in later times, they would send prisoners there. They would send people there to be in exile because it was so out of the way. So if you have an epidemic that sweeps into a town, into a place like that, it's devastating. And what we found, we could already see it in the Negev. First of all, we could see it in sites along the Incense Road that they were just rooms and even whole sites that were totally abandoned and nothing was taken. I excavated a site back around 1999, 2000. We found an entire, what started me looking at this at that time was that we found an entire pantry, a kitchen pantry that was totally stocked, totally stocked, but it was not, it was not looted. And when, and that and the other rooms, when people came back to start living there again, they covered everything up. They they just buried everything underneath dirt, and they would not live inside of it, and they didn't touch it. But then we found this that we'd already found this situation at other sites. We had whole sites that had been abandoned in this way, also in the Arava, the site called Orhan Moor. It used to be called Moa. Um, the same thing. Uh, it was just amazing. You could you could open a museum on that one little building, seventeen by seventeen meters. Uh, of the amount of entire whole material that was just left in place and people walked away from it and nobody came back, nobody looted it, nobody bothered with it. It's very obvious that there wasn't anybody around and nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted when pe people were afraid to deal with it. Now in Petra, we have cases where caches of uh, material, of pottery were buried. For example, in several places we found them, uh, I would say several, at least two places I know of particularly, that were buried inside of, of channels, like water channels. But you see whole pottery that people just took and buried in one place from one time period. It's like they're getting rid of the pottery. Uh, we have rooms, for example, service rooms uh, that are in part of the Temple of the Winged Lions that were totally abandoned the same way. Everything just intact, and people walked away from it. There's a place called the Painter's Workshop that this took place in. Unfortunately, the, the excavators dated it at that time too early. They dated almost 100 years earlier than it actually is. We now know we have a better idea of what the date was. But it falls exactly in that time period. But the most important thing that we know about this epidemic as far as Petra is concerned is that it's the end, evidently it's the cause of the end of uh, several things. For one thing, Petra is the very first town, first city in the East, in the Eastern Empire that stops issuing their own, minting their own coins. Okay, that's happening very early in the third century. The second thing is that it's the end of the beautiful tradition of pottery. You have this beautiful eggshell ware that's been produced for over 200 years, 200 years, 250 years or more, 
and it stops. It just stops overnight. It completely shuts down. Um, and also the ceramic ugentaria, these uh, bottles, these small ceramic bottles that are used for the for the, the uh, uh, perfumed oils, they stop at the same time and they never come back. And it's interesting because in the next generation, you can see that people are still trying to make pottery there near Petra. And they're even trying to apply some of the same decoration, but they don't know how to make the potter anymore. So it's very obvious that, and, and you have to realize that we're talking about a small hand, a handful of people that basically had that skill. And when they left, they, they died or they left the site and, and there was no one to replace them. There was no one who took over that, who passed that skill down, like it had been passed down for several generations. It came to a total end. Now, the, the city of Petra, continued to be populated at least until 363 AD when we have a terrible earthquake. Uh, but once the water supply, this huge, fantastic water supply that had been intact for almost 300 years or more, uh, was destroyed, most of the town, most of the people in that place left Petra. And they're still using Petra for churches. We have the churches that were being built there in the archives. But they're leaving the city center and they're going into other places, and they're not sticking around. So it, it's, a, it's a gradual process. I mean, each time you have, you know, some kind of natural disaster, in this case probably um, an epidemic, it seems like it's the most reasonable explanation for that. It doesn't seem that we have any war or anything that we could, that uh, in old days we would say it was, you know, military. But we do have very good, um, we have good records, historical records about the fact of how bad these uh these epidemics were in the second and the third century, particularly in the third century. You have Roman emperors that die from it. And there were so many people died from it, basically, that there weren't that many people left around to even write about it, okay, in the third century. So that seems to be a part of it. By, by 270 AD, none of the eastern towns are producing their own coins, okay? And the uh, basically, the incense trade has been wiped out. And all of these big trading routes are are declining or being or being abandoned altogether okay around that time it that's put such a much more human face to the history just thinking about yeah. how an epidemic may have wiped out all the elders for instance hi this is Raoul Wycliffe the producer of the Times of Israel daily briefing your 15 minute daily update on what's important in Israel the Middle East and the Jewish world Listen to us Sunday through Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, or on the mothership, thetimesofisrael.com. You've done a lot of work as well with other precious commodities and how they've been <laughs> exported and created in the Negev, the garum, for instance, the fissas, <laughs> and also wine production. What have you done recently about this? Well, um, we had an excavation that I directed in 2019 um, right south of Ashkelon, and it was an area that I hadn't worked in before. It was quite interesting. Um, it took us several weeks to find anything. It was a big area that has that's usually a big part of it is turns into a seasonal lake. In the wintertime, it, most of it fills up with water. Um, but we were very fortunate in discovering a part of it that had uh, the remains of what would have been a monastic settlement, uh, that had wine presses in it, and they were producing wine jars uh, for to export wine abroad in the Byzantine period. Um, 
However, underneath that, when we kept excavating, we found uh, early, a much earlier wine press, almost 500, that would have been there 500 years earlier in the first century AD, maybe even the beginning, the later part of the first century BC. And next to it, we also found um, these, these facilities that I've identified as being garum facilities. Um, they have parallels. The, this particular one that we had seems to have the best parallels with the type that was discovered in Spain at the site of Malaga. Now, it's very unusual to find garum uh, production facilities in the eastern Mediterranean. They're very, very common in the western Mediterranean, the Italian coast, particularly Spain, North Africa, very, very common. Uh, however, we know the garum was being produced everywhere, and we know that. Uh, Pliny the Elder, who speaks about it in the same, around the time that of the time of ours was operating or just finished operating, um, he said that people had started growing fish, small fish, from rainwater, that'd be fresh water, and they were not just taking fish directly from the sea, they were also growing their own fish and making garum. We actually have a fish pool that was found right next to our facilities, and we found a well, there was well water and there were fish being grown. And uh, we found the vats. The whole idea was to take the fish and to either the small fish or larger fish that you would gut them and take the guts of the fish and you would put it in vats and you would turn it over and over again in the sun for three months. The stench was overwhelming. And obviously you wouldn't want to put these things close to town. You couldn't put them in the center of town. And even on the edge of the town would be difficult. Uh, so, and in our case, we're two kilometers southwest, southeast, I'm sorry, southeast of Ashkelon, which means that the winds, the prevailing winds, are taking the stench away even from Ashkelon itself. Um, I believe that what we had was a very, very wealthy farming estate of the first century AD, maybe even the end of the B first century BC. We know at that time that Ashkelon it, it was an independent, it was kind of an unusual city for, the, for all of this uh, area for all of our region, because it was independent. It was a very important um, city to the Romans, and it had good connections with Egypt, which is something that I also could see with the finds. We had finds that you could see had Egyptian um, connotations with the El Bes, and uh, we had a few things like that. And uh, it, we could see that there really was a very, very wealthy estate. At the time when I was excavating there, I was kind of puzzled. Because all of this just kind of stopped. It kind of reminds you a little bit of what happened in Petra, but it kind of stopped in its tracks. And in the next phase, the whole area turned into a cemetery um, for about 200 years or more. And we also found a very interesting lead coffin there with some fine, very, very interesting glass finds, beautiful things. Uh, but what happened, you know, that this other place had stopped, you know, this, this estate, uh, which it was, it was in a perfect place, by the way. Cato the Elder described the kind of place that you should have a farming estate. And this place was exactly to order. It was very close to important roads leading to a major city near a coastline and all the things that you need. But it stopped. It stopped operating. Uh, when I looked into it, I realized that I didn't know that at that point the history of Ashkelon, but um, in the first Jewish revolt, um, the Jews attacked one of the very first places that the Jewish forces attacked in 66, the, the fall of 66 AD. They attacked Ashkelon, evidently because of the massacre of, of, of uh, Jews in Caesarea. And uh, the Romans then, and the Ashkelonians were able to withstand this attack. 
um, they evidently, we don't know exactly what the sequence was, but evidently they managed uh, the, uh, the uh, Ashkelonians executed Jews in the city itself. They also put to death a lot of Jews. So the Jewish forces attack again, and they were rebuffed again. And But the whole thing is described as happening around the hinterland right around Ashkelon. They didn't manage to break into Ashkelon, but they evidently did destroy all kinds of smaller places and farming estates around Ashkelon. So I'm assuming that, that the sequence what we have is probably related to that, quite possibly. And it kind of makes sense that we would turn it into a cemetery, too, because, um, you know, if you have, they claim that over 10,000 Jews uh, were killed right around there. I don't think they were buried there. But the whole area, once it was no longer a farming estate during the first uh, Jewish revolt, became a cemetery for like 200 years or more until the Byzantine period. And I find that sequence of events quite interesting. It makes so much sense, uh, as you're saying, the stench of this awful, horrible <laughs> sounding, at least ketchup, <laughs> that the Romans loved. Um, and yeah, used not just not just the Romans, not just the Romans. The Jews loved it too. The, uh, every people, even the Jews, had kosher garum. It was something we think of it as ketchup, but it was more than that. They actually ate it. I, I think, except for maybe things that were sweet, they ate it in literally everything. They would put it. It, it supplied saltiness. And savory, it gave a savory taste to, people asked me, what did it taste like? And I said, probably similar to anchovies today, if you can think of something like that. Uh, it was very strong. And we have Roman writers who make fun of women uh, that were, would, would, would eat it. And then they would breathe on people. They were, you know, it was pretty disgusting, I guess. But they were very happy. Everybody was dying to get their hands on garum, okay? And garum, by the way, I say garum, but there's all the, there's other, there's Alex, there's different types of things. Garum was probably the highest, uh, most, um, you know, quality uh, product. But you had other products that came that were cheaper that you could also buy. So you could get the garum itself. We're talking about the liquid, it's a liquid. So... It was strained out of baskets, and we actually found things like this. We didn't find the baskets, but we found parts of dolia. We found the kind of implements that you that are reported uh, to be used in that. We exactly found those there. And uh, what would happen is, at the end of the three months, they would they would strain the 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 fish, and and this very very precious liquid would come out of it, and they would collect that. But with the fish itself, with what was left over, they were also able to make a kind of paste, I guess kind of an anchovy paste, and people were buying that as well. So they're producing different different levels of, of product here, and it's very popular. Everybody's in on it. The Jews are in on it, the, the non-Jews, everybody. It's a big deal. And this goes on for hundreds of years. But it sounds almost like a miso in a way that you can just add to everything yeah. to, to add flavor as well. Exactly, yeah. Now, the next uh, precious commodity that we'll talk about is wine. And as you said, mm -hmm. the Byzantine era was very populated in the Negev. The Negev was populated mm -hmm. during the Byzantine era, and it's well mm -hmm. associated with wine production, correct? Mm -hmm. This is correct. And... Um, this is one of the things that we found. I did my, my years ago, did my ex, my doctorate on this exact subject. What happens when the incense road breaks down? Because we know that in the next phase, in the negative, we have one, we can see it. I mean, the, I'm a, I work a lot with pottery and the most number one 
pieces of sherds of pottery in the Byzantine period are what we call Gaza wine jars. Now, these are jars that are used for transporting wine. Uh, they're not um, they weren't made in the in the in the Negev highlands in the places that we find them. They were being brought from the western Negev and from the coast around Gaza and Ashkelon, and uh, in secondary use, there's like a circulation of these jars, and they're evidently taking the jars out. They're they're, they're producing wine, and they're, the the Negev towns are in the city of Halutza are are getting in big time on the huge um, bikush, the demand for wine, for what we call, uh, we know about Ashkelon wine, for example, being very, very popular already in the fourth century. And you can see the Negev getting in, basically getting on the bandwagon and also producing all, all over that and they're exporting it out. Um, this, this view, by the way, has recently been challenged uh, by claims that, it that the wine, what we find the facilities was not really enough, and but we keep we are still discovering wine presses in this field around Elusa, for example, are still finding things, and just the amount of wine jars that we see, you can see that there's they're so much more than almost anything else. It was a big part of their economy. However, we have an interesting situation that kind of reminds us what what happened before with the Nabataeans. We have another big plug that comes through. This time, it's coming. We know where it's coming from exactly, uh, I mean, I should say exactly from the coast. We have ships that are arriving to the site, the city of Pelusium along the uh, north North Sinai coast. And there's a plague under the reign of Justinian around the time about um, 540, excuse me, 540, uh, 40, um, 42, 43, I hope I'm getting that right. And at that time, uh, this plague starts to take off, first of all, in the area of the Negev before it gets into the rest of the uh, Byzantine Empire. And it's really, really devastating. And when it finally reaches Constantinople, Procopius says that over 10,000 people a day were dying there in Constantinople. I mean, it was, we don't know what, we don't know what these, pl these epidemics were, by the way. Uh, they could be almost anything. They could have been measles. They could have, they could have been things that today we don't think of as being a pandemic, but they were then because there was nothing, there were no vaccinations. There was nothing to slow them down. And, um, so you had a tremendous amount of people dying all over the empire and you have a drop in demand. And in the Negev, at least in the central Negev, we see a change. We see that all of a sudden they're not producing that amount of wine. Okay. And, and then now they're still producing it along the coast, closer to the coastline. But in the Negev highlands, we see a huge drop off in the, in the amount of, of these wine jars that we saw very steadily up to a certain point. And we also see a drop even in the botanical remains as well. You can see that there's changes. And those are studies that I've been doing together with uh, uh, Professor Guy Bar-Oz from Haifa University and uh, da Dr. Daniel Fuchs, uh, who's associated with Bar-Ilan University. And uh, Ehud Weiss, as well, Professor Ehud Weiss, also from Barilan, and other researchers. And we've been looking into all this, and we can see that st uh, statistically there's a drop in all of these things around that time, around the mid-6th century. Um, and we see changes. We see changes in, inside the towns and inside the city of Ilutsa. We see that parts of them are becoming abandoned now. Like up at the German uh, expedition from Cologne, Germany, have been working in Elusa for several years. And one of the things that they noticed was that Elusa was very robust and they're, they're rebuilding their streets and there's maintaining a huge bathhouse 
I mean, something really big, kind of like you have in Beit Sha'an, something really big. And um, they have a theater there, something we have nowhere else in the Negev, not in Beersheba or anything else. And all of a sudden it stops. We can see that it stops. Now, people didn't abandon, totally abandon these places, but you can see that they're blocking up their houses here and there. And in Elusive, for example, you get by the next century, by the time we go through the Islamic conquest and all that, um, you can see that the, the city is becoming ruralized. It's becoming rural now. They're starting to build, um, let's say, olive presses in the streets, a street that used to be a major, you know, that would have been paved and maintained. They're not throwing their trash out anymore. They're throwing their trash into the town next, next in the, across the street or into the street. Everything is broken down. Like you see that the city is in major decline. It's not something that happens in one year. It's something that's happening over a period of about 100 years or so. And what's amazing is for Elusa, which was a huge place, we had around between 8,000, 10,000 people there uh, at its height. But now we see that it's almost totally abandoned by the 8th century. Like another 100 years ago, 100 years or more, it's, it's all, nobody's there anymore. We haven't found anybody there yet. And I've been looking at literally probably millions of pieces of sherds of pottery, and we're simply not seeing it. And some of the other sites, for example, Shifta um, and Nisana, they do continue further. They do, but they're not continuing in, in a robust way. Um, you can see a very, very vast decline after all that. So there's big, big changes that are happening. <laughs> I wonder, um, as a person who studies the past and delves into these and gets your hands on the on the past so so deeply, how does that influence how you feel about the present in terms of the rise and fall of all the different empires that you've studied yourself? And you look around mm -hmm. today and you think, oh, here's another one, or or how do you see the present? Well, I think that people should be aware that that um, um, I, I, I'm sh I, obviously what is happening now. The world is not as vulnerable as it was in those times, okay? And they have better ways of dealing with things. However, uh, I mean, and this is something you see, especially with the Roman Empire. These things start; they they don't happen in fifty years, and they don't happen a hundred years. But but within 150 years, you can have a major decline. Like once things start breaking up, it can go down. And um, and I think that's something to take in. To, I, I remember telling people about this. Uh, I remember talking about the economic decline that happens because of huge amount of inflation that takes place uh, between the late first century until the third century. That's one of the, we talked about the epidemics, but it's also inflation. There's, there's several factors. There's not just one factor. And uh, one of the things about the inflation is that, that um, um, and I think that we have to be aware of that, that, that once it sets in, it's, it's something kind of like a dry rot. It's something that's hard to get rid of. It's not something that you can, you can treat that easily once you have these kind of changes. Um, and I used to tell people that before the 2008 crisis. And then I remember people were very upset, you know, very freaked out about what was happening. You know, the sky is falling. And of course, things kind of stabilized, but the world economy took a huge hit at the time. And now we have what's happening with the corona crisis, which still isn't over. Okay. I mean, we have, it's over for us, maybe in Israel, but it's not, the rest of the world is not in that great a shape. I mean, the very fact that I can't, I have to think twice about getting on an airplane and going anywhere. Am I, can I go? Can they come? I can't see my kids. They can't come here. 
and uh, that's that's unusual. I mean, that's a huge impact. So I I'm not a prophet. I can't say, and it you know you can everything is different in time and it's different circumstances. Um, but I do have to say that there seems to be some line. There's some things that seem very familiar with what what you see in in modern times. And I think the main lesson would be that people should always be aware that um, not to expect um, um, progress to go on and on forever. The progress progress can be slowed down. It can be put on hold. For example, in the Dark Ages, for many centuries. Uh, and by the way, it's a sporadic thing. Um, when whereas Europe goes into the Dark Ages with the end of the Roman Empire, the East actually, with all the wine production and everything, actually does pretty well for itself. It's not the, as high a standard of living, but it's quite big. There's still a lot of going on. So you could very well see a situation where parts of the world still manage to do better than other parts of the world. And um, But then that can drag everybody down eventually too. So One thing is certain death and taxes. So take the King's yeah. Road, pay your taxes, and you mm-hmm. may uh, dodge death for a little while. But in any <laughs> case, Talia, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Okay, thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 